If you have your Bibles, take them and let's turn to uh, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we are uh, looking at the, uh, the prayer of Paul uh, this morning and um, the last uh, petition that he makes. And uh, let's stand. Why don't we stand as we read uh, the scripture this morning? I want to read the whole prayer again. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And uh, you can follow along as uh, we reflect on how it is that Paul prays for this church and what it is they need to know. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body." The fullness of him who fills all in all. Father in heaven, it's um, kind of uh, a fascinating thing to look at another person's prayer. And yet this is something that you have seen fit to record in the word for us so that we might learn from it. And I think come to a greater understanding of what are the important things that we need to know as your children. And even as important how we ought to pray for other people who are your children. We come again to this word which is beyond our natural abilities to make sense of. We can understand the grammar and we can understand sort of the meaning, but we don't know it's life-giving, life-changing effect unless you open our eyes to make sense of it. So again this morning, Lord, um, we need this book to live in our hearts and in our minds. We need this book to um, help us to know what it is you would want us to do and how you'd want to live this, how you'd want us to live this week. I pray that we would leave here just with a greater understanding of what it means to be a child of God and all the wonderful resources that you have provided for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I was thinking we've been in chapter 1 a few few weeks now, and it's probably helpful to to do some summaries from time to time. It just pulls it all together. And uh, if you are sort of been visiting with us the last little while or you're here and you're wondering what Christian faith is all about or just trying to get a handle on some of these things. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 is an amazing chapter of the Bible because it helps us understand a little bit about Christianity. It helps us understand a little bit about why it is that we worship this God that, that we do and, and what it is that um, He is doing in our lives and what makes Christians tick. And so as we sort of review this um, section, I just encourage you to listen carefully and to, to, to see, oh, that's what Christians think, or that's what they're all about. Um, now it makes a little bit of sense. Um, chapter 1 of Ephesians is three sentences. Uh, the first sentence is uh, verses 1 and 2. The second sentence is verses uh, 3 to 14. And the third sentence is verse 15 to 23. Of course, that's in the Greek language. In English, we, 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 we make it a little bit different so that we can understand it. Um, but it is really three sentences in Greek. The first sentence, verses uh, 1 to 2 really describes for us a couple of things. It describes to us what a Christian is, 
and the context in which we live our lives. And it's fairly simple, um, and yet it's, it's extraordinary as well. Paul describes the Christian as a, as a saint and as one who is faithful. And that's really um, one of the, the basic starting points of a Christian. A saint uh, is not some superhero of the Christian faith, not some uh, superwoman who has done amazing things. A saint is anyone who calls themselves a Christian. A saint is somebody who has been called out of darkness into light, and it's another way of simply saying a Christian. And so a, a, a Christian is one who is called a saint because God has um, set his love upon them, drawn them out of the world, and put them into his family. The second thing, though, that he says about um, uh, Christians is that they are faithful. So there's some, something that um, describes the context of a Christian, and it, they are faithful to God, and they are faithful um, to the things of God. Those are really at the, at the core of what it means to be a Christian. There is something that you believe, there is something that you live for, and so the book of Ephesians really describes those two things. The first three chapters describe how we become a saint. The last three chapters describe how we are faithful what it means to be faithful to your spouse, what it means to be a faithful parent, what it means to be a faithful employer, what it means to be a faithful Christian in the world in which we live. And so that's how Paul begins. He begins by describing what a Christian is. The second thing, though, that he describes is he describes the fact that Christians live in two different contexts, that we live in two different worlds. He says, one, you live in the sphere of, of, of Christ. And I know this might be a little bit strange, but we are in Christ. In other words, everything that we have, every change that is taking place in us is because Jesus Christ has done it for us. He lived the life that we couldn't die. He paid the price for the sins that we couldn't pay. Um, He gives us strength. He gives us power. And so we are in Christ. And so our life is, um, is, is wrapped up in being a Christ followers. But there's also the reality that we live in the world in a specific location. So he says to these Christians, you are in Christ and you live at Ephesus. I might say you are in Christ, but you live in Parksville. So we have our foot in two different worlds, so to speak. Um, We're in Christ and we're in Oceanside. And he says that's the reality of our lives. And that's the context in which we live. And so we need to understand the implications of that. So that's what he describes in that first uh, first, first sentence. The second sentence is is a, a 203rd word or 203 words, um, exclamation of all of some of the great things God has done. And it's why we worship God. It's why we praise God. And so Paul is just thinking about many of the things God has done, and he's just pouring out his thankfulness to what God has done. It's, uh, I've called it a living eulogy. You know when you attend a funeral, um, we have eulogies, and in those eulogies, people speak the wonderful things of that person's life. It's not everything they've done, but they highlight things about that person's life. Well, Paul, in the same way, is highlighting things that God has done. God has set his love upon us. God has chosen us from the foundation of the world. God has sent Jesus to, to redeem us or to free us from our sins. He has given us the forgiveness of sins. Um, he has made it possible that we become part of God's family. And as one of the writers say, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God. It's extraordinary. Paul is just praising God. Thank you that you made me one of your children. And then he moves on from praising what God has done and praising what Christ has done to, to praising the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us. 
and gives us this great encouragement that we are going to um, get what God has promised to us. And so the second sentence is this amazing um, snapshot of various things of which Paul is just praising God for what he has done. And then that bleeds into the prayer which we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. And his prayer is really, uh, it's, it's, it's quite simple, but it's quite profound. His prayer is that we might come to know God better. I find that astounding. This is really beginning to shape my prayer life this last three or four weeks that I've been looking at this prayer. Just changing the way that I've begun to pray for my, my, my wife and for my children and for this church and, um, and for friends uh, that I know are walking with God. It's been shaping that for me. Because the first thing that Paul prays for, and there's really four things, four general things. He prays that they might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. Knowledge of God is synonymous with eternal life. And so, what, what more could we pray for somebody? What more could we pray for our children? What more could we pray for our spouse or for our church? God, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you make yourself known to them? Might they come to know you in your glory? Might they come to know you in their power? Might they come to know your love for them? Might they come to know your grace and your mercy for them? On and on and on we could pray, which is the knowledge of God. The second thing that he prays for them is that they might come to know what is the hope to which they have been called for. And they, well, why do we need to know the hope of our calling? Well, I, for me, it's because I need to know that God's going to finish what he started in me. I, I start out on, on Mondays and things get pretty good, and by Monday afternoon I've messed up a few times, and by Friday sometimes it's a real mess. And I can really despair. But I have this amazing assurance and it's a hope that I have that one day this battle will be over. That one day what God has started in me, he will complete. That one day Jesus Christ is coming, about, coming again. And so there's these, these promises that gird my hope, that, that help me then live in the midst of this world that I live in. And so we ought to be praying that. God, would you fill this church? Would you fill my spouse? Would you fill my kids? Would you reveal to them the fact that there is this hope that God, you will finish what you started in their life, that no matter what they face, no matter how much they fall, no matter how hard they fall, you will complete what you started in them. Second thing or third thing that he prays for is that we might know something of the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Loved ones, we are rich. If you are a child of God, you have this extraordinary inheritance that has been laid up in heaven for you. And think, well, why do we need to know about our inheritance? What good does that do for me? Well, as I said last week, um, for me, the main reason is that it costs to follow Jesus Christ. We looked at some of those passages where it said, if you want to be a Christ follower, you need to count the cost. You need to think about what is it going to involve. That involves saying that the, the, the highest priority in my life will be Jesus Christ. It will not be my wife. It will not be my parents. It will not be my kids. It will not be myself. It will be Christ. It means that, that, that we say to ourselves that, that I will follow the pathway of Christ, that even if that leads to death, I will follow Christ. It means that I will give up everything that I have in order to follow Christ. There's a cost for following Christ. So when we remember what our inheritance is, we say, I can never give up um, anything that will um, in, in any way um, outdo the, what I gain in the inheritance that I get. And so we pray that we might more and more know this inheritance that is ours. And then finally then, we come to the final element that he talks about, and it's that we might know about God's power in us. 
that we might know about God's power in us. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? I don't think it's by accident that this is the last of the four petitions. I think it reveals the apostle's heart. Think about this for a moment. How can I ever receive the hope that I've been promised? How can I ever claim that inheritance? I stumble, I fall, I'm frail, I'm weak. My, my mind is weakening, my spirit is willing, but my body lets me down. I feel daily the downward drag of the world around me. I sense the relentless pursuit of the enemy of my soul. As Paul says in another place, I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I delight in the law of God, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. What possible chance is there that I ever will realize that hope, that I will ever gain that, inher- that, in- that, that inheritance that is waiting for, how, how, waiting for me? How can I be sure that it will be well? By coming to know something of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that is at work in those who believe. Loved ones, this is the secret to life. This is, this is one of those, for me, it's been one of those sort of marker moments that I, that I go, aha, I've not thought about this. I've not figured this out before. You think, well, what are you doing being the pastor? <laughs> I'm just learning like you are. It just struck me, though, this, this passage of Scripture So Paul prays that we might know something of the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. The greatness of God's power in us. I I was thinking about this. We see a little bit of the humor of God when we come to verse 19 particularly. And it comes to writing scripture because as I've said a few times here, um, when God wrote scripture, and this is God's word, this is what we call it, God's word, it's what it calls itself, it's the living, breathing word of God, God didn't sort of put men in a trance and they just kind of closed their eyes and wrote, Um, they weren't robots, Um, he, he didn't dictate to them what to say. But rather, through their uniqueness of their personalities, the uniqueness of their experience, the Holy Spirit guided and directed them as they put down these thoughts so that what came out was the Word of God, was the, was the very words that God wanted for His people. It's an astounding process, the way in which God did that. But this is one of those cases where I see this going on. And here's Paul. He's trying to describe something of the power that's in him. And he, he can't quite get it. And so he, he, he writes one word, and then that's not enough. And he writes another word, and that's not enough. And he writes another word, and that's not enough. And he writes another word, and that's not enough. And then he says, well, I've got to explain myself. And so that's what we get here. And the first word that we see there is he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? That's the first word for power that God uses. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word that, um, that, that's called dunamis. And it's, a, it's the word, a Greek word from which we get the English word dynamite. The word came into the English language in an interesting way. When the Swedish chemist and engineer Alfred Bernard Noble made the discovery which became his fortune the discovery of a power stronger than anything the world had ever known up to the time, he asked a friend of his who was a Greek scholar, what was the word for explosive power in Greek? And his friend said, dunamos. And so Noble said, well, that's what I'm going to name this discovery. And so he called the discovery dynamite. 
And, and I tell you this to give you a sense that this power is not something that we have naturally. It's not something that we delegate to other people. But this is an explosive, life-changing, world-changing power that comes into us because God dwells in us. This is Pentecost Sunday, and it says in, in uh, Acts chapter 1-8 that you will receive power, dunamis, when the Spirit comes into you. And so one of the first things that Paul says is, is he says that we would know something of the greatness of his power, this explosive power that is in us because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives in us. But he says, well, that's not enough. They don't quite get it. And so he comes up with the second word, and he says there, uh, the, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working. That's the second word for power, and, and that is a Greek word, energia, which obviously we get our English word energy from. Philippians 21, or 3.21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power or the energy that enables him to subject all things to himself. God is able to grasp the, 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 the processes of biology and make them work for his power and his glory. There's this energy that, that God works in us and in this world. And so Paul says that that energy is also at work in us. And then he goes on and he says according to the greatness of his, uh, he says there according to the working of his great. That's the fourth word that Paul uses for power there. And that's the word that means strength or it means might. It's the Greek word kratos. It could be translated sometimes dominion. In Colossians 1.11 it says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's it again. So he's now talking about the glorious might of God that's at work in us. In Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That word strength is the word that's used here of might. So he's, he's saying that this dunamis is working in us, this dynamite, this explosive power. He's saying that the, the energy of, of God is at work in us. He's saying that the might and the strength of God is at work in us. And then he's, there's one more word that he uses, which is, it's a funny word, um, ishkas. And it's not the same as all these other words, but it also means a different kind of strength or might. And so Paul, or Peter says that whoever serves, you ought to serve by the strength. That God supplies. You see it again. There's this another power or strength that God is working in our hearts and in our lives. So this first word dunamis means an inherent or an explosive power. And I liken it to the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in me. The second word energy means an operative power. It means that God is at work in us changing, transforming, working out his purposes. The third word Kratos means ultimate power or dominion. And the, the, the fourth word means might. And Paul is saying, this is, this is what I'm talking about. There's power everywhere. There's power from every angle you look at it. He says, and it's yours. It's all yours. He says, this is the power that's at work in you who believe. And well, you think, well, so what? I think it's so important that we get this. Because the apostle knows that these Ephesian Christians, like Christians everywhere else, are oftentimes immobilized by the grip of fear. He knows our insecurities. 
He knows that these, these Christians are afraid of their neighbors sometimes, or they're afraid of failure, or they're afraid of persecution, or they're afraid of ridicule. There's a deep sense of inadequacy and impotence that comes into their lives from time to time. They don't think they can do anything. They don't think they can stand against the forces that are around them. They know how entrenched the forces of evil are that surround their city and the surround where they work, and they think it's hopeless to try to challenge any, change any of the social situations of their day. Have you ever felt like that? I can't make a difference. This problem is too big. This issue has just overtaken the world. This is too big for our city. This is too big for our province. I can't do a thing. Paul knows that that's how we sometimes think, that that's how we sometimes feel. And what's the answer to fear? Well, it's power. When all of a sudden you you have power, your, your fear is dispelled. It kind of goes away. The minute you feel a sense of adequate power, you lose a sense of fear. These these forces are mighty, powerful forces. And Paul prays that Christians, their eyes would be open to actually see what is at work in and through them. So Paul prays that in a very practical way that they might know something of the power that is available to them. the, The greatness of that power that's at work in them. So many times we live and talk as if we don't have power. We live as victims. We, we live in a defeatist mode. Do you ever feel like giving up? Do you ever feel like throwing in the towel? Do you ever feel like your struggles are, are too much and you've had it with struggling any longer? Well, I think it's because we don't know the power that is, that is at work in us. It's because we've lost sight of the one who has given us the power. He's given us the power to deal with sin. We don't have to be slaves to sin. Why? Because the power of God is at work in us. We don't have to be slaves to discouragement and despair. Why? Because the power of God is at work in us. We have power to witness. We have power to do whatever God asks us to do. Are you afraid to open the scriptures? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes. Are you afraid to witness? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Are you afraid to serve? I can't do that, God. I'm not ever, I'm not qualified to do that. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works in me. You have power. And in fact, Paul says, we have so much power that we're dangerous. In in Ephesians 3.20, listen to this. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or, or, or think according to the power that works where? That works in us. That works in you. Do you understand that? Paul is he's praying that we would come to know the greatness of God's power that is in us. And do, do you see how this will change your life? There's nothing that God asks you to do that he won't give you the power to do. There's nothing that comes into your life that you can't beat because of the power, the might, the strength, the dunamis of God working in you. This is, this is sort of life-changing stuff. Then he he goes on and he gives three illustrations of this. Three illustrations of God's 
power at work in us. It's like we, we can't get it. He sort of described it. And now he's saying, well, I don't think they've got it. And so here are sort of three illustrations that maybe help us understand this a little bit more fully. He wants us to, to see that this power is first demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says there. That, the, the, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Because we might have a tough time understanding this, Paul reminds us that this fourfold power that we've been talking about is the same power which God worked in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. In other words, this power of God is the power that defeated sin and death. This power of God is the one that raised Jesus back to life. It is unlike any other power. It's not a power of the intellect. It's not a power of personality. It's not a power of money or family name. It's the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that is able to bring life out of death. It's the power that defeated sin. There is, there is no way that we can give up and say, I can't beat this thing. There is no way that we think when I, there's no way we should think that when I die it's all over because God has demonstrated through Jesus Christ that he has the power over sin and he has the power over death. Sometimes I can't make sense of these things and so I read other people and one of the fellows I read was Ray Stedman and I love the way that he put it. He says, it's a power that works best in a cemetery. If you're living in a cemetery, if everything is dead and dull and lifeless around you, Try resurrection power. This is what it is for. It means that this power takes no notice of all the obstacles. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, paying no attention to the stone, to the decrees of Caesar, to the fulminations of the Jewish priests, nor to the guard in the front of the tomb, resurrection power doesn't pay attention to any obstacles. It just surges on ahead, leaves the problems up to God, and goes on. It means that resurrection power requires no outside support. It doesn't rely on someone else, nor upon something else. It doesn't need a vote of confidence. It doesn't require any kind of undergirding expressions of support from anybody. It can operate alone, completely alone if necessary. And it means that it makes no noise or display. It doesn't try to arrest attention. By some publicity stunt, it just works quietly and without any noise affects its transformation. It brings life out of death. The phrase that he uses there is, is so critical to understand. Um, and it's, it's this particular phrase. Resurrection power doesn't pay attention to any obstacles. We need to hear that, loved ones. There is nothing that you can face this week. There is no obstacle. There is no barrier. There is no force. There is nothing that God has called you to do that he will not help you to do. Because the same power that defeated sin, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that very same power is at work in those of you who believe. It's astounding. That's, a, that's amazing. So for, if you're struggling with anger, or if you're struggling with lust, or with gossip, or with pride, or with drugs, and you keep losing, it's because we're not dwelling on the power of God that works in us. We're saying that this is more powerful than God. That's not what the Bible says. Because of the mighty power of God that works in us. And further, you'll notice 
that he says it's not only resurrection power. He gives another example of this, that it's the supreme power of the universe. He says, look, you may question the power of God, but look at this. It's not only the same power that raised Christ from the dead, but it's the same power that has seated Christ. And listen to what he says. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule or authority or power or dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The power of God is the power that has defeated and wiped out every single power that is out there. Power of men, power of angels, power of nature, any power that you can imagine, God has conquered it, and Christ is seated far above any power in the thrones. He says that same power is at work within you. So you come up against it this week and you're fighting. You're saying, well, it's a force too strong for even me to handle. And you say, no, no. It's the same power that seated Christ far above all other powers. You come against a spiritual battle and you say, I can't do this one. No, no. It's the same power in you that has seated Christ far above every authority. See how important this is for us to figure out and understand. God has smashed these, every power, God has smashed it. It is above and greater than any force that we will ever face. In case you're worried about whether or not God is going to be able to come off with his promise or whether or not God's going to get you out of the mess you're in to glory up there, he just did it, or just remember that he did it in Christ Jesus. Just remember that Christ is still not in the grave. Just remember that where Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father far above all powers. See, the whole message here is that we understand something of God's power in keeping us, His securing us from fulfilling the marvelous hope which is ours in Christ. Again, there is nothing that you can face this week, loved ones, that God is not able to strengthen you for. There is nothing that you can face this week that you need to be in fear of. There is no force, there is no power, there is no obstacle, there is no decision, there is no item for service that you need to be afraid of and say, I can't do that. I can't win this one. Because he's saying this amazing fourfold power of God that raised Christ from the grave, that exalted Christ far above all powers and authorities, that very same power is at work in those of you who believe. That's amazing stuff. We don't have to cower in fear. We don't have to give up and throw our hands in the air and say, I can't do it. You can do it because of the power of God that is at work in you. So Paul is praying, Father, help them to understand that there is no reason to be insecure because the same power that raised Christ and that brought him to his coronation is working in and through all of those who believe. Understand what God has done for you and what God continues to do in and through you. There's one third thing he mentions, and I just say that in passing, that he gave Christ, um, it says there, and he, he gave Christ, uh, he put him as all, all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to, to the church, which is his body. The power of God is displayed in Christ's work in the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is the only institution that will last through this, the destruction of this world because of the preservation and the power of Christ in the church. 
And he, he goes on and he says this. He says, we are filled with him. It's incredible. We are filled with Christ. It says that we are filled with his fullness. It's amazing stuff. Peter sums it all up this way. By his divine power. By his divine power, this power that we've been talking about, by his divine power, he has granted us everything that we need. Not most of what we need, not some of what we need, but everything that we need for godly living. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Loved ones, we need to be praying this for one another. We need to be praying this for our church. We need to be praying that we don't cower back in fear, that we don't turn tail and run when the going gets tough, that we don't give up when temptation comes our way and say, well, I've got no choice, it's just me. No, we need to be praying that we would come to understand that the very same power that raised Christ from the dead, the very same power that set Christ far above all rule and authority, that very same power is at work in those of you who believe and trust in Christ. And so Paul prays. God, will you help them by your spirit to understand the greatness of the hope to which you've called them. May you help them to understand something of the glorious riches of their inheritance. And may they come to understand something of the power of God that is at work within them.